Support for NPR comes from ADP. Say you're in HR and a solar flare adds an extra hour to each day. How would this impact business? ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to help your business take on the next anything. ADP, always designing for people. In previous John Wick films, Keanu Reeves played a retired hitman out for revenge. In John Wick Chapter 4, he decides to go after the international criminal organization that's put a price on his head for an even simpler reason. He wants to be left alone. His quest for freedom takes him around the world, through endless waves of would-be assassins, through busy traffic, up a hell of a lot of stairs, and finally to a showdown against a sadistic French aristocrat. I'm Aisha Harris. And I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about John Wick Chapter 4 on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Here with me and Aisha is writer and critic Walter Chow. Hey, Walter. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning to you. And making her pop culture happy hour debut is Waylon Wong. She's co-host of NPR's daily economics podcast, The Indicator from Planet Money. Heard of it? Hi, Waylon. Hello. I will serve. I will be of service. Yes, you will. Welcome, welcome. So in John Wick Chapter 4, Keanu Reeves is back. Yeah, I think I'm back as the laconic assassin who's targeted for assassination by the High Table, an international cabal of powerful criminals. This time out, the High Table tasks the Marquis, played by a sinister Bill Skarsgård, redundant, to kill... John Wick. The Marquis throws a lot of money and even more bodies at the problem, enlisting the help of Wick's former colleague and friend Kane, played by the great Donnie Yen. Wick's got some help of his own in the form of the gently paternal Winston, played by Ian McShane, and the sardonic Bowery King, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Other allies include Hiroyuki Sanada as Shimazu, who manages the Osaka branch of the world's deadliest hotel chain, and pop star Rina Sawayama as Akira, one of only two women in this film who speak. Also in the mix, the unaffiliated tracker, played by Shamir Anderson, whose allegiance shifts as the price on John Wick's head increases. And returning to the franchise is Sharon, played by Lance Reddick. Reddick died suddenly last week of natural causes. He was only 60 years old. John Wick Chapter 4 is in theaters now. Aisha, what'd you think? Well, I found myself asking, why do I keep coming back to these movies? And I mean that in the sense that, like, I am not by any means an action movie aficionado. I've seen many of them. I've followed a couple of franchises, including Mission Impossible and, uh, of course, the Fast series. But it's not something that I naturally gravitate toward necessarily. This is the fourth movie I've loved a lot of this franchise. I especially love the first one. I think the second one is great. And then the third one is kind of starting to feel a little bit of the, okay, where are we going with this? But What I found is that in this film, it kind of proved to me again why I keep coming back to these movies. One, the action sequences, they just remain truly impressive. I realized that we, in so many of these films, we're getting lots of things rushed and hurried by, and you can't even always see the action. I'm looking at you, Marvel movies. It's confusing. No matter what's happening, even though there might be hundreds of bodies on the screen and shots going off and knives being thrown and various other objects being hurled at each other, Mm. I can always tell what's going on. And I can also always feel what's happening because you can hear them exasperating and saying, 
uh, oh, ah, ah. Like you get all of that very visceral feel to these fight scenes. And so the repetitiveness for me works because I still feel in it. I feel affected by them. The other thing I think that keeps me coming back to these films are the moments of levity in between when they aren't fighting. And, you know, those moments are often fulfilled by the other characters that aren't John Wick. Although I will say John Wick in this movie probably says maybe 250 words and most of them are yeah and I'm going to kill them all. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it. And I think that this film, better than the third one, kind of goes back to its roots and I think also is a little bit sillier and knows it's silly. I loved this movie. It was a little too long, but I forgive it because... There were several sequences that I'm sure we'll get into that were just like mind blowing and fantastic. And all I'm going to say is like Frogger on steroids. Yeah. That was that was a great moment. <laughs> it certainly was. Yeah, we, we have a macro here at Pop Culture Happy Hour a little too long. And I think we just <laughs> plug that into everything. It's I'm sorry, but it's it's true. But Waylon, maybe you don't think so. You're a wick person. What would you think? I am a wick person. I did find this too long. I think everything should be 90 minutes. This was not 90 minutes. You're speaking my language. (laughs) (laughs) But I had a marvelous time at this movie. I'm very bought into this franchise, been a fan since the beginning. Um, I should mention that when I saw the first one, I went in so unspoiled that I turned to my husband and said, I hope nothing happens to the dog. And (laughs) that was rough. That was rough. It was rough. But I've, I've since enjoyed my time in this world. And I think what I really like about this series is that with each installment, they try to give you action that you've never seen before. This really delivered on that. There were sequences in here that I was like, wow, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this in any action movie. And it was just so incredible and bombastic and really memorable. So I Mm -hmm. loved that. I think where the series is starting to lose me a little bit is with the world building because they've opted for this particular kind of world building that just involves layering on more rules and bureaucracy of the high table. Mm -hmm. And so you are getting away from the simplicity of the first one, which is a very simple revenge story, which I like. It's very pure. And now it's like once John Wick solves a problem, he encounters some high table bylaw and now things are complicated. And I'm, (laughs) well, I don't really enjoy the rules. Like they're just starting to feel a bit tedious to me. Mm -hmm. I'm really in it for the action and for the visuals. That's my caveat, that I really liked it. But if you're not into rules, this unfortunately is a little heavy on the rules. Yeah, I love I love that, that he goes up against all these assassins and also ultimately bylaws. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> just, can he win against the bylaws? Walter, what'd you think? Where'd you come down? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I think people have pretty much said it all uh, so far. It's very long. <laughs> it's just very soggy mm-hmm. in the lore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a lot. And I think really the charm of the first one was the little people. It wasn't the high table. It was, you know, the cop that comes to the house after he's killed a whole house full of people. And you expect a big shootout with the cops, but really it's like, Hey, John. Hey, Jimmy. You're back, huh? I just cleaned up some stuff. And he talks to bartenders and he talks to like the janitor, the cleaner. They're the people that clean up in the stadium afterwards. And increasingly after the first one, it becomes about, you know, the marquee and the Bowery King and the high table. It's like, well, I'm kind of more interested in the guy that, the caterer. And the <laughs> quiet complicity with the rest of the world. And how does this world actually interact with the rest of the world? And one of the charms for me about this fantasy world that they've created is that there were actually rules. When they toast each other, they, they say, consequences. Uh-huh. And what a huge, amazing, satisfying, wish fulfillment fantasy John Wick now becomes of the world in which we actually live in. In which, you know, the, the prospect of justice is dangled in front of us for 
decades it feels like and you know everyone that should go to jail doesn't go to jail they just get richer in front of us and it's so frustrating the world feels so frustrating but here's john wick it's like you killed my dog i'm gonna kill 167 of you you know and there's there's a real simplicity to this kind of world this culture of consequences and accountability that you do something bad and you get a marker and you get a, a something goes wrong immediately even though you're a good guy you're excommunicado it's so simple and so beautiful in that simplicity and you know to Waylon's point everyone's point really that boy you start bogging it down with lore and that's really the danger of all these franchises you have to do this homework now it's like it, it just becomes a lot of work for no real purpose it's like if singing in the rain had 30 movies yeah. of lore in front of it it's like just just do the dancing and the singing because that's what I'm here for and it's awesome when you do it and it's like a musical right mm-hmm. when John Wick is really good it's like you know, all of a sudden a dance breaks out and everyone on the street knows the dance. It's awesome. <laughs> I love it. You know, that, that's the fantasy. But yeah, I think the further you get away from that, the more you bloat it down with all this really kind of self-important stuff, it gets you farther and farther away of the simplicity of this fantasy. Yeah, it will help for you to remind yourself a little bit of some of that lore, though, because I had completely forgotten about the magic Kevlar suit thing. Uh, so this is, again, I couldn't figure out why there's so much violence without viscera. I mean, it feels visceral, as to Aisha's point. That's because he can just lift his jacket up around his eyes like he's Dracula and boom, nothing nothing happens. And let me get these out of the way real quick at the top. This movie is two hours and 48 minutes long. John Wick, more like John Fuse, because a wick is longer than a fuse. This movie is so long that this time his dog dies of old age. Huh? Huh? Last one. This movie is so long that this time when he says, yeah, I think I'm back, it's because he literally can't remember because of all the meds he's on. Okay, that's it. I'm done. Thanks for indulging me. This delivered for me, but it kept on delivering, and then it over-delivered, and then I was ready to return some of it. When it comes to ROI and your entertainment dollar, you got kids, you need to hire a sitter, you need to pay for dinner, you need to pay for parking. This is a good ROI on your entertainment dollar. It's a good deal. Mm -hmm. But to put that in context, we've all touched on the magic of that first film back in 2014. If you remember, the trailers made that thing look pretty cheesy 80s Charles Bronson film. (laughs) But I remember the phenomenon of John Wick the first kind of bubbling up. I mean, I think it's the last true sleeper hit that I, I remember. It's just people talking about how, oh, you got to check this out. <laughs> Even if you didn't know that the director, Chad Stahelski, made his bones as a stunt performer and then later a stunt coordinator, the film's commitment to practical stunts, to to wowing you with what the human body is capable of, what it can do and what how it can be punished, that was clearly paramount because you felt those set pieces hung along a story that, if you're feeling generous, you could say it was streamlined. It was uncluttered. If you're not feeling generous, you could say it was thin as hell because what is this whole movie? Why is he doing it? They killed his dog. Simple, clean. And as the films have gone on, as we all have said, layers of of world-building markers and blood oaths and excommunicado. And I fight with this movie because... I love the look and feel of it. I love the switchboard operators. I love the chalkboards. I love the Bakelite phones. But uncluttered is not a word you can use anymore. And the layering on of so much has changed how the fight scenes play out. The fight scenes used to have their own stories that they told. They were clear narrative structure that you could feel in your bones with beginning, rising action, climax, Daniel Maul. Here, and this was also true of the last film to a lesser extent, we get beginning, rising action, long plateau of kind of undifferentiated action, then end. I kind of came away from this feeling differently than I did with the other movies because I I felt those fight scenes were pummeling me just as much as they were pummeling the main character. Interesting. I didn't quite get that feeling, but I can also see 
how you would feel that way, especially with the sequence towards the end involving a staircase, very long staircase. (laughs) And that one definitely, I think for me, it took a little bit longer to reach the peak, I guess pun intended, the peak of the staircase, like because (laughs) you kind of get what you would expect on a staircase. And then, I don't know, maybe two, three minutes in, you finally get like, this is what we're here for, which is like people sliding down staircases and shooting each other and and pummeling each other. But I do think that this is what happens so often with franchises is that each one has to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Not to bring up Fast again, but I, I do think that that's a similar thing that's happened with the Fast series, where when you go back and watch those first couple of films, they're very, very simple. They are just like hot girls Cars, racing, and that's it. And then by the current phase of the franchise, we've got people going to space in cars and and giant like things blowing up and all these other things. I think there's good and bad about that. I think you do have to kind of ramp things up in these kinds of franchises because the stakes have to ostensibly get bigger. It is to a point where I do wonder, we don't need to talk about the the way it ends, but it did, the movie itself, there's a kind of a recurring motif where people keep asking John Wick, so have you gotten any thought to how this ends? Like, how does this end, John? Like, and, and you really, really sense that in this film that they're just like, okay, we're trying to give you an ending you might love. And, you know, your mileage may vary on that. I think it ends in a way that I think it should end. But I also understand how people could just be like, oh, my God, by the end of the movie, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting about Fast and the Furious is that they did about four films of racing of like fast cars. And then with five, they decided to basically make the series into something else, which was they turned it into a heist movie. So then now they're like international men and women of mystery solving crimes around the world using cars. To me, that's an interesting analog to John Wick. Like if they've taken the high table stuff and John Wick's kind of motivations as far as it can go, then does John Wick do something else now in retirement? Does he solve crimes? Does he pull off a heist? It seems wildly improbable. Selling trends. And, and yet, if you watch the first Fast and the Furious movie, you would never have guessed that by number five, they would be doing a bank heist in Brazil, you know? I yeah. mean, I kind of think John Wick, Fast, Crossover, I wouldn't mind seeing that. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Glenn's rolling his eyes, am, but that's I how I feel. No, from your lips to God's ears, I would watch. I would watch that. <laughs> I, th- I think that there's a real level of comfort in movies like John Wick, ultimately, and that's what kills franchises. Right? Is that what was fresh and exciting becomes comfortable? You know that Cole Porter song in olden days, a glimpse of stocking was seen as something shocking, but now anything goes. You have to escalate continually because your kink gets more and more kinky. And so I don't want to give too much away, but if it ends the way that we think that it ends, it makes a little bit of sense because then it feels like this sort of triumphal march through all of the highlights of the Wick series, you know, the highlights and the things we love the best, the characters, the places, the things we visit, even the nightclub scene from the first movie is replicated in this movie. If we're doing a triumphal march, a quick revisit, and, you know, so much of this movie is about exhaustion. He looks exhausted. He says he's tired. (laughs) Oh, man. And Keanu is a full 10 years older than me. I can't imagine. If I fall, I have to go to the hospital. I can't imagine how he's doing this stuff. So there's something about this movie I think that's really about aging out, about saying, hey, Donnie, you and I are both 60 years old, almost 60 years old, or 59, 50. We're pushing 60. It's maybe retirement age for action heroes. 
okay, maybe it's time for Rena to take over. Maybe it's time for Ana de Armas to take over. Maybe it's time for this next generation of people. And what are we going to pass the baton in the movie? We already changed the guard, but now we're going to change the guard again and say, okay, we've done the Arc de Triomphe. We've run up 250 stairs or however many it was. When there's that really funny thing that happens in the stair sequence, you guys know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. That, that goes on. It is so yeah. funny. <laughs> I really laughed more than it was actually funny <laughs> because I think I really needed the release of it. Like, you know, this has been so dour and kind of sort of down and, and repetitive in a way. By the time that that happens, I'm like, oh, this is really funny. Yeah, it's like a Looney Tunes moment. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Or, or, or Police Squad. I was <laughs> sure. Thinking, you know, it's so funny. And I think it's because we need that. We need that kind of release after four movies of this. But I think really what it had on its mind is to do kind of a victory march. Endings aren't bad. <laughs> Endings can be good. <laughs> <laughs> We've kind of barely talked about Donnie Yen, but I think even though he is kind of a late addition to the game, I really liked him here. His character is blind. And the way they choreograph those scenes and his fight scenes, I think, is a good example of the franchise elevating it or like going like to the nth degree, making it bigger, yet also making it in a way kind of simpler because there's a great sequence where he's fighting and he can't tell where people are coming from. So he has these like sensor tags, like the type of things where if you walk in front of it, it's going to like go off. And he leaves a trail of them on like various objects and on the walls so that he can hear them coming and then like kill them or whatever. And I think those little details are just really fun. And those are the types of things that I haven't seen in other films. And being able to sort of play with this idea of someone having not having access to one of those senses that is mm-hmm. you would think is very crucial to be an assassin and to fight off all of these people. I really liked that touch. And I think even if there are some similar things, they're gi- they are still giving us other new things. And I think those new things in many ways are additive and less reductive. To me, I w- I'm intrigued by this idea of exhaustion. And, you know, like if John Wick is tired, is this a good time to just like call it and let him let him be like maybe go get some therapy and retire for real because I what struck me is that you know not that much time has elapsed well between the first one and the third one I think it's actually a pretty short amount of time that's covered and then this fourth one I I think takes place some amount of time after the third one but the amount of time since his wife died is actually very short so I was thinking about the character of John Wick and you're not given a ton of information about him but I was thinking about him as a man who is deeply, deeply in mourning. And I'm like, is this whole thing, this whole series, just a radical manifestation of his grief over his wife dying? And that's kind of interesting to me. But I think that if now he's gotten revenge and that feels satisfying, then maybe it's time to call it because if he keeps killing people after this, then he is just the death-dealing sociopath that he's sometimes accused of of being in the film, right? Like, oh, you don't know how to do anything else besides kill. And it's like, no, no, because he's on like a righteous path. But if like he seems to have maybe accomplished what he needs to accomplish and is there's another movie where he's still killing, then I'm like, well, maybe he is a monster and then I don't want to root for that, you know? Sure. Yeah. I kept thinking about personality. Why why are are these guys friends with John Wick who has the personality of wet cardboard? (laughs) And then, Waylon, you actually nailed it, I think. It's grief. Like, I love that reading because that explains to me how all these can be, you are my brother. It's like, really? This guy? (laughs) Him? (laughs) You're going to put your life in line for this dude? 
Okay, well, tell us what you think about John Wick Chapter 4. Find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash pchh. Up next, what is making us happy this week? This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, streaming acclaimed original series you won't find anywhere else. With powerful performances from Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, Bella Ramsey, Matthew McFadden, and more. Streaming at BritBox.com slash NPR. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Now it is time for our favorite segment of This Week and Every Week. What is making us happy this week? Waylon, tell me, what is making you happy this week? Well, I recently revisited one of my favorite documentaries. It is Spellbound, which came out in 2002. It follows a bunch of kids who are competing in the National Spelling Bee. I think it's the 1999 Spelling Bee. And we actually have it on DVD because this is a movie that I like to revisit. And I was a competitive speller as a child. And I now have a kid who's old enough to do spelling bees and just qualified for her first school-wide spelling bee. So we decided to watch it as a family. And man, this movie is like perfect. It's like Mm -hmm. perfectly structured. There's the right amount of tension. It's so emotionally resonant. You really get to know the kids and their families and you feel the stakes. And I notice new things every time I watch it. And it makes me think so much about class in America and social mobility and race and parenting and what success looks like in America, especially for children of immigrants, which I am. And it's got it all. I cried. I laughed. I could watch this movie, I think, every week. I never get sick of it. Mm -hmm. So that is Spellbound. We watched it on DVD, LOL, physical media. But but you can rent it. You can also stream it through Canopy with a K if your public library has that service. Oh, that's great. That's a great rec. That movie came out a while ago, so there might be a generation of folks who haven't seen it. And man, they should go out and get it as soon as they can. Walter, what is making you happy this week? Well, I'm a little slow to the game here, but I've been really uh, binging hard on Black Thought and Danger Mouse's 2022 album, Cheat Codes. Mm -hmm. It is extraordinary. And my son is the one who's really into hip-hop culture, and and he knows so much about it. He's really self-taught. He's 16. And the way that we really uh, can bond, we found, is by listening to his music together. And all the call-outs, all the samples, all the little Easter eggs that are in these really brilliantly structured songs, he's able to say, hey, Dad, what's Harlem Nights? What's Billy (laughs) Bathgate? What's Cole Porter and Akira Kurosawa? All of these people are name-dropped. And so that, to me, has been extraordinary. But we, together, you know, learned about The Last Poets. And the Watts Prophets, because that's sort of name-dropped in this album. And I was able to look up all these poets, and we read their poetry. We talked about the situation at the end of the 60s that that caused a rise of this artistic expression. All of this based on a brilliant, tight set done by the producer Danger Mouse and Black Thought from The Roots. And it brings me closer to my son. And anything that helps me be more cool (laughs) and less tedious for my kid is great. And also, it makes me smarter. It's like we... 
are able to talk about stuff that we're both passionate about. We both expand our worlds a little bit. And so, you know, the power of music and the power of art, right? So anyway, uh, Black Thought and Danger Mouse's Cheat Codes, it's a instant masterpiece. That's a great wreck. Also, a great wreck is just uh, the notion of parenthood turning you into the giver, basically. (laughs) I kind of of like that. Thank you very much, Walter. Aisha Harris, what is making you happy this week? This is Pop is a Canadian series that aired in 2021 on CTV and has since dropped on Netflix, so you can find it there. It's this like fairly light and sometimes aesthetically inconsistent docuseries about various pop phenomenons. Some episodes have a host and narrator, other others don't. There's also some like cheesy aesthetic choices, including actors acting out the song Leader of the Pack by Shangri-Las, which is like a classic song. The visuals that they added to it, a little cheesy. Overall, I found it really enjoyable and informative It takes these various phenomenons and tries to bring a little bit more context and nuance to things that we're all familiar with but maybe haven't thought too much about. Some of my favorite episodes include one on boys to men's influence on the boy band culture of the late 90s. And it really breaks down how they were kind of in many ways directly responsible for all of these white boy bands who got even bigger and came after them, including NSYNC and, and Backstreet Boys. And it features interviews with actually three of the boys to men, the remaining members of the group. And I found that really fun and nostalgic. And there's also mm-hmm. one about auto-tune and T-Pain, which is really interesting. And another favorite of mine is about the Brit pop scene, which is probably one of the episodes I knew the least about going into it, but they really cover the sort of Oasis blur moment that was happening in the 90s. So that's This Is Pop. It's on Netflix. And yeah, just check it out if you're into anything kind of music, nostalgia related, especially when it comes to the 90s. That sounds great. Thank you very much. Uh, what is making me happy this week? You know, I played a lot of the video game Elden Ring when it came out. Talked about it before. Uh, I played it a lot, which meant I died a lot. That's the game. You die a lot. That's what the game is known for. It's also known for what happens to you when you die. You see your crumpled body in this amazing fantasy setting. And then these big, blood red, capital letters, just the words, you died, come up on the screen. Uh, the Twitter account, noun verbed is an exercise in simplicity. Uh, It just takes a screenshot of Elden Ring, but instead of you died, it takes a random combination of nouns and verbs and puts them in the same blood red, all caps, (laughs) death font. Now, it is an algorithm, so it's random, so they're not all gonna be winners. Don't expect it, plurality locked. That's nothing. Stanza hoped. What does that mean? That's nothing, it's word salad. Carceral state jogged. That's like you're wasting my time, but then sometimes. Only sometimes you get something that just, it's got a bit of something and I can't explain why I love it, but like narration sucked, (laughs) intercourse bored, (laughs) spoons cheered, (laughs) noodle loved. I can't explain it, but this little jolt of randomness popping up in my feed, I don't know why, but I find it kind of weirdly heartening is the word I would use. And I don't know why, but that's the way I feel. So that is at noun verbed on Twitter. And that, for whatever reason, is what's making me happy this week. And if you want links for what we recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Aisha Harris, Waylon Wong, and Walter Chow, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. So grateful thanks. to be here. Thanks, it was so fun. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fatima and edited by Mike Katzif. Our podcast coordinator is Brendan Crump, and our supervising producer is Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Theme music provided. 
Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon, and we'll see you all next week. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, I hear you have a birthday coming up. Yeah, you. If you're listening to this, that means you have a birthday coming up eventually. And here at LifeKit, we want it to be a special one. Magic can happen and good luck can happen and serendipity can happen if we're open to it. How to have a good birthday, even if you're not a birthday person. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR.